This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest wi-fi access for customers bt's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy whatever your business bt's got your back search bt's got your back hello this is the red box podcast i'm matt shawley bringing you the best of my times radio show you can listen monday to friday 10 to 1 on dab smart speaker or download the times radio app so you can listen to us anytime you like um hell of a week on the old pod last week loads of you got in touch about the interview with steve baker the interview with frank field pmqs our feeders and pets uh, remembering Betty Boothroyd. Uh, so hopefully this week we'll be able to uh, bring this similar spread of topics and guests and so on. Uh, coming up on today's episode then, do you have what it takes to be a spy? GCHQ of recruiting. We'll speak to two former heads of the secret listening post in Cheltenham uh, to find out what is involved and about the big emerging threats right now, China, Russia and so on. Really fascinating chat coming up with them in just a moment. But first, we start with this. The Columnists. On Times Radio. Yes, it's that time of the morning we speak to our two favourite economists. No Libby Purvis today, though, but we have got Rachel Fester. Morning, Rachel. Morning. And playing the part of Libby Purvis from the Daily Mirror, John Stevens. Morning, John. Hi, morning, Matt. Uh, good to have you both here. So let's start with, by far and away, my favourite story in the papers today. Uh, Boris Johnson has put his own father's name forward for a knighthood in his resignation honours list. Uh, Sir Stanley Johnson, as he would be, is among as many as 100 names that Boris Johnson has put forward for awards. Uh, I imagine you think this is a good idea, John? Well, I mean, I'm not surprised about it at all. Boris Johnson is totally shameless and he has proved it yet again. I'm surprised there's not more family members there on the list. I'm surprised there's not a Lady Carrie Johnson on there, maybe a peerage for a few of her friends. But I don't think we should be surprised at all when we think about what he did with his brother a couple of years ago. You remember his brother, Joe, quit his cabinet. He had one of those fake jobs in the cabinet, one of those ones where you, you're allowed to go attend cabinet and sit at the end of the table, but you're not really a real You're on the little flap, minister. you're on the extra little table they sort of exactly, bring in at Christmas. The extendable bit, yeah, exactly. <laughs> the children's table. He had one of those positions in cabinet, which he quit in protest over Brexit, said he was quitting in the national interest. And then about nine months later, after he'd left being an MP, Boris Johnson rewarded him with a peerage. So I think, you know, no one's to be surprised that Boris Johnson's taken this opportunity to hand out a few gongs to members of his family. 
Um, Rachel, is the problem that actually Prime Ministers leaving office shouldn't just be allowed to just round up everyone they've ever met and give them a gong? Somebody was pointing out this morning that Tony Blair didn't do it, uh, Gordon Brown didn't do it. It was resurrected by David Cameron. Um, and actually, this tradition is probably one that we would best, best sort of put back in the in the bin. Absolutely. I mean, gongs should be for people who've done something noble for their country, not for political services to a prime minister. I remember one of Theresa May's aides saying to me that she'd said to her um, when she started working for her, don't expect a gong, you know, you'll be lucky if you get a Jaffa cake at the end of all of this. <laughs> Theresa May did do a few, I think, didn't she? But Boris Johnson has taken it to a whole new level. What I find rather extraordinary about the decision to give the knighthood or try and give the knighthood to his father is that he obviously does want to go back into politics, does uh, does want to go back into Downing Street, rather. He does still want to be prime minister. And this is so obviously unpopular, you know, deeply dodgy thing to do. It's rather amazing that he thinks he can, even though he wants, he's still got sort of ambitions for the top job, he thinks it's okay. It's the sort of thing... Maybe you do if you'd given up any hope of ever getting back to number 10. Um, or most people wouldn't, but, but you'd think Boris Johnson <laughs> might. But it's just the sort of shamelessness of the thing. The rule, He really, really doesn't think the rules apply to him. And even, you know, last week was absolutely incredible when the Privileges Committee came out with all those new photos of him, you know, surrounded by bottles of booze at the lockdown parties. And then he somehow managed to turn it around and claim that um, Sue Gray's decision to go and uh, work for Keir Starmer was a sign that her report was totally invalidated, as if, you know, she was the one rolling the bottles of wine into Downing Street in a wheelie uh, suitcase. So he's just shameless. I mean, yeah, Boris Johnson is shameless. Is not, a, uh, I suppose, a new, uh, <laughs> a new, a new development. Um, John, I wonder whether you, given in the sort of the the balance of where Boris Johnson is and the amount of support for him on Tory benches, middle this time last week we were being told he wasn't going to speak out on the Brexit deal because he didn't want to look silly because there weren't enough people to join him, and then he did speak out. There wasn't exactly a huge rush in behind him. I wonder if if you're a wavering possible Boris Johnson supporter. You don't really want to be having to go out on the telly and defend a knighthood for his dad, do you? Well, I mean, most of them seem to be willing to defend most things. I think a lot of them, you're going to see them holding their breath to see what happens with the Privileges Committee. I know a lot of them have been mouthing off the last few days about Sue Gray. But I think if you do get to the position where the Privileges um, Committee find that he did mislead Parliament. And I think it is quite hard for him to make a comeback. But there's always going to be those diehard believers, people like Nadine Doris, who herself is being offered a peerage, even though she hasn't bothered to turn up to the House of Commons for several months, that will always defend him and always dream of the day that he comes back. But I think, you know, I think Rachel did have a point there with what she was saying about there is a problem with honours that are dished out at the end of a PM's time in power. There's kind of a democratic deficit there because obviously if a PM's in, they make controversial decisions on who they're going to hand out peerages and knighthoods to, then they're still in power. You know, voters still have a role, MPs still have a role. But if they do it afterwards and then it just goes through on the nod, there's kind of no way of stopping it. And at the moment we're hearing, you know, allies of Rishi Sunak will say, well, it's not really up to me who gets a peerage on Boris Johnson's list. There's not really a mechanism for me to be able to stop it. And so I think that is a 
difficulty that you've got people who are out of office they'd say yeah give you all these rewards to all these people and there's no kind of real comeback to kind of rein them in one thing that's really fascinating i think is that Boris Johnson's success was based on harnessing the sort of anti-politics mood in the country. So whether through the Brexit vote or then as a kind of populist prime minister winning that election in 2019, he did it by saying he was going to be taking on the kind of old, you know, he tapped into that mood of hostility to politics and politicians. And now he's just turned into the sort of, I mean, he always was really, but it's the worst example of the worst kind of politics. Um, so it's a sort of the populist turned, um, you know, populism stoker, if you like. It's fascinating. Well, I suppose it's interesting, isn't it? But if, you're, if your supporters start thinking, well, he, you know, if it, if it was populism in, in to help you, then that's one thing. If it's populism to help yourself then you know, or your family members, that's slightly different. Um, let's move on. Well, I suppose it's all connected, I suppose. But now um, <laughs> we drift seamlessly uh, into uh, Partygate, Simon Case and uh, Sue Gray. Let's start with Simon Case, first of all. Um, uh, the Cabinet Secretary, obviously the most senior civil servant in, in the country, he's now facing calls from Cabinet Ministers to resign after appearing to criticise both Boris Johnson and Rishi Sunak in the uh, latest tranche of the hugely riveting Matt Hancock WhatsApp uh, messages. Is this a problem, uh, do you think, John? Or is this just, let's be honest, nobody would want all of your WhatsApps and what you may have written about colleagues released in public? Well, I definitely wouldn't want my WhatsApps and what I've written about, not necessarily colleagues, but other people released in public. So, like, they're, um, they're safe with me, John, don't worry. I won't give them to Isabel. But, um, but I think the WhatsApps could have been a lot worse. Obviously, I think they are fascinating to see how exactly do people communicate behind the scenes. It is interesting to be able to go through the individual messages, work out what exactly they did. But I think... You know, when we knew that they had this massive kind of collection of messages, you thought, goodness me, there could be really, really damaging stuff in there. And obviously, there's much more to come out that we haven't quite had. I think they're going to run it over 10 days. So who knows what's left? But so far, I mean, a lot of it's been very interesting. A lot of it has kind of brought back issues we've talked about before, such as the protective ring around care homes. But none of it has been kind of absolute meltdown stuff. And I think part of that's been because a lot of the characters who've been involved in the messages so far, maybe they're holding back other stuff, have been people who have already left power. So people like Matt Hancock, Boris Johnson... Gavin Williamson, even if there was something that was in the messages against them that was completely kind of toxic nuclear, they can't really lose their post because they're no longer in government. I think we saw a bit at the weekend of Rishi Sunak and Eat Out to Help Out and a suggestion in the messages that Matt Hancock had helped to cover up the impact of Eat Out to Help Out on spreading the virus. But so far, most of the stuff we've seen has not really been at the door of anyone who's still left in power. Um, and let's well, let's move on to uh, the other side then. Sue Gray, uh, we're told that she was... Uh, Kemi Badenot wanted to give her a job as permanent secretary and that was then blocked by Simon Case. It's all connected, isn't it? Uh, well, uh, there's now lots of questions being asked about when exactly the Labour Party approached uh, Sue Gray. Well, Keir Starmer's been asked several times uh, this morning by Nick Ferrari on LBC when he first approached Sue Gray to be his next chief of staff. So I will try again, and obviously you don't have to answer, but when did you first contact Sue Gray about the possibility of becoming your Uh, chief of staff? Well, Nick, that's going to be laid out by Sue. She's got to do that as part of a um, leaving procedure, but there's nothing improper um, at all. But you can't tell me that. 
Nick, nothing improper at all. I've no, been no, looking... no, but you can't tell me when you first approached her. I've been looking for a chief of staff for um, a little while now, um, but Sue will lay that out. Um, why, why won't but you tell nothing, me, But there's nothing improper at no, all. No, 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 I, I, but just I'm sure why you won't tell me when you first made contact with her. I'm not going to go through lock, stock and barrel, but um, <laughs> there's nothing improper. Uh, not going to go through... Lo- that's not the right version of lock, stock and barrel, is it? Um, Rachel, is this a problem for Keir Starmer? Uh, or, actually, if we're talking about Sue Gray, it means we're talking about Partygate, which can only be good for the Labour Party. Well, I think it's a bit more complicated than that. So um, I was talking to people in Whitehall, and there is a genuine disquiet about this, her decision to leave and go and work for the opposition. Um, Sort of very senior civil servants do worry that that will undermine their kind of reputation for impartiality. And she, Sue Gray, is seen as the kind of, you know, the queen, the high priestess of propriety and the ethics and the rules. Um, So there is a concern, but I don't think it needs to be like that. You'd hope that this is a return to a more kind of proper, you know, procedures in government, a chief of staff who isn't political, isn't a sort of bully, um, and who is going to sort of ensure that government runs smoothly across Whitehall. Uh, so I think, you know, I don't think it's a problem for Keir Starmer, so long as Sue Gray, when she becomes Chief of Staff, is just as willing to speak truth to power as she has been in her previous roles. What do you make of it, John? Is it a problem? Well, I think that people are forgetting what exactly was in the Sue Gray report, because in the run up to it, everyone, you know, when Sue Gray became this national character and everyone was obsessed with her and what exactly she was ordering in prep for a coffee. I can't remember. (laughs) What was it? Just double espresso or something. Yeah. No sugar. Reveals Um, the woman drinks coffee. But she, we, we built it up that this Sue Gray report was going to be the thing that brought down Boris Johnson and it was going to be catastrophic and it was going to be fatal. And actually, when the report came out, it was fairly reasonable. It was There were photos in there, but it was quite factual. It could have been much, much worse for mm. Boris Johnson. And she did have the option that she could have gone further on a lot of things. So stuff like the ABBA party, which she started to investigate, then the police got involved, and then she said, oh, she didn't really feel it was worth ever going back to it. Decisions like that don't really tally with what you've got Tory MPs saying over the last couple of days, saying, oh, yeah, this has always been a Labour plot. Sue Gray was always out to get Boris Johnson. If that really was the case, she could have gone much, much further with her report than she actually did. Let's bring in Paul Johnson now, Director at the Institute of Fiscal Studies. Morning, Paul. Morning. Now, we've got the budget next week. Much excitement. Uh, big, you know, it's like the World Cup for you. Uh, how much money has um, uh, Jeremy Hunt found down the back of the sofa? Depending on which paper you read, uh, borrowing could be £30 billion lower, uh, according to one report, which means he could go cut our taxes, possibly. How much money has he actually got to play with, do you think? Well, these numbers are all a bit silly, in a sense. Um, he's got far less money than he expected a year ago. Um, uh, and a little bit more than he expected three or four months ago for next year. Looking into the future, which is what really matters, it's no reason to expect the Office of Budget Responsibility is going to find him any more money at all, at least not any significant amount of money. So what's he going to do? Well, I think he will um, claim that he's got some more money because things look a little bit better than they did in November over the next year or so. Uh, he'll use some of that to probably um, give us all a bit off our energy bills, a bit more than we expected. I hope to goodness he does something about public sector pay. Uh, I also hope to goodness he doesn't um, 
try and blow any of this money on long-term tax cuts, which are not going to be feasible further on if the longer-term public finance forecasts are anything like right. So uh, my guess is that we'll get a little bit of help in the short run. I hope we get something for public sector pay. We might get something for companies and corporate tax, because remember, corporation tax is going up very, uh, a very high level um, in April uh, and we'll probably see some things on um, uh, trying to get people back into the labour market. Uh, but don't hold your breath for big tax cuts. Um, do you think that uh, it, there'll be lots of rabbits out of hats or be a, a deliberately trying to be a boring affair that we'll have forgotten about within a week's time, Paul? Uh, probably uh, more on the boring side. But, I mean, this is one budget where I think I've got less sense of what the, that the big things are likely to be than I have for quite a long time of course he's got another uh, he's got two more fiscal events um at least probably before the next election there'll be an autumn statement again in november there'll be another budget next march if he wants big um, rabbits to you know woo the electorate uh he might well be better doing it then than uh, than now because either he'll be announcing something now for next april in which case uh, he'll lose the bang for his buck next April, or he'll be doing it for, for this April or this summer, by which time people have forgotten about it by the election. So I, I, my, my guess is, I could be completely wrong, my guess is this will be relatively steady as she goes, trying to save up a bit of money to do something more exciting uh, in a year's time closer to an election. What are you hearing, John, Stevens? Well, I think we obviously know the things that they're going to do on energy bills. It seems pretty obvious that they're not going to put up fuel duty. And it doesn't sound like they're going to cancel the big increase in corporation tax. But there are some kind of unanswered questions about, do you try and do something on childcare? That has been one of the issues which has been percolating around. It's something that the Labour Party have been openly saying that they're going to have a big, big offer on childcare at the next election. And obviously, if they did do something on that, that would fit with this drive about getting more people back into work. And Rachel, that's something that you looked in with the Times Education Commission as well. Yeah, and and the other bit that fits in with that is something on getting the long-term sick back into Mm. work, uh, which we hear he's he's very keen to do. With childcare, it just seems to me, and also I don't think we should necessarily call it childcare, it's about early years education, changing the way that you think about it. So it does help parents, so it's good for the economy, but it's also good for children. And the sort of most efficient use of money is to make sure that children at a very early age um, start to learn the right habits about um, education for the rest of their lives. And that's the thing that can make the most difference to the long-term future of the economy. But of course, chancellors are are so hidebound by the kind of three-year, five-year cycles, even one-year, six-month cycle almost now, (laughs) isn't it? Um, That it's very hard for them to think in that long-term. But I do think if the Conservatives don't do something on early years education, childcare, Labour will will trump them at the election on it. Is that something you've looked at, Paul, at the IFS? And is there a, is can you mount an argument if you do get more people back into work because uh, they've got childcare, that actually you get more taxes? And is there economic benefit of that that you can sort of model? Or is that <laughs> all a bit Liz Truss? <laughs> yeah, look, there are clearly some benefits here. I mean, it, it, it is interesting, though, uh, Rachel, I mean, despite what you say, I think, um, you know, the reality is that we have moved from something that's been focused on early year support for kids who really need it to 
um, a childcare support to get parents into work. And those are two quite different sorts of policies. And you can see why, because the latter is more attractive, I think, immediately, particularly to sort of middle income kind of voters than uh, than the former. Is yeah. We do, need, we, we, we do need to get the policy much better than it is at the moment. It's incredibly inefficient. Leaves me with big bills and doesn't do a very good job of supporting those youngest children who really need it. That was Paul Johnson, the director of the Institute of Fiscal Studies. Joining him, of course, Rachel Vest from The Times, John Stevens. Don't forget, you can read all about the budget in the run-up to next week's big announcement from Jeremy Hunt in The Times. Just get yourself a subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Box. Up next, running GCHQ. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. You're listening to the Redbox Podcast now. It's time for this. The Big Thing on Times Radio. Could you be a spy? Sir Jeremy Fleming, the current director of the intelligence agency GCHQ, is stepping down after nearly six years in the role, which means they're hiring. So what does it take to recruit and train the next generation of Alan Shoyds, whose story was captured in the imitation game starring Benedict Cumberbatch. Which is what this is the theme for. We don't just throw it together. We don't just throw it together. So what does it take? Uh, let's hear from two former directors of GCHQ. A fascinating chat with Sir David Oman. And first, Sir Francis Richards on how the secret agency was born. You can say it exists, has existed basically since the end of the First World War, when the various Ministry of Defence departments dealing with signals um, were merged to become GC and CS, which is what became Bletchley. It didn't become GCHQ until the end of the Second World War, but it took over all the earlier functions of gathering communications intelligence, cryptography, um, our protection against foreign code breakers, all of that. And David, explain to us the difference then. How is GCHQ different to MI5 or MI6 that people might have seen in films? MI5 is Britain's security service. So that's the domestic security operating largely through uh, human intelligence. MI6 or the Secret Intelligence Service 
collects intelligence through running agents on targets overseas. GCHQ, if you like, it's the technical uh, side. It's these days very much a digital agency and cyber security agency. But following what Francis has just said, what I find remarkable is how very quickly Britain followed the invention of radio Marconi. Uh, his first experiments only took place a few years before the First World War. And yet by 1914, you have the world's first signals intelligence station being set up at Scarborough on the northeast coast in order to monitor transmissions from the German Grand Fleet who had installed radio, uh, find out where they were, find out if they were still at sea. And Scarborough is still today a GCHQ uh, signals intelligence station. And is that, uh, I suppose, is that a reflection then, David, that each time a new technology comes along, pretty soon afterwards, it, it starts being used by baddies and therefore the intelligence services have to get to grips with it? Yes, and starts being used by goodies as well. <laughs> well what I mean by that is that um, essentially, you always have to stay one jump ahead of the baddies, whoever they are, because your own communications have to be impenetrable to their efforts to crack them. So you're not playing a purely reactive game at all. You're trying to be at the frontier. And you were both at GCHQ in the mid-90s, early noughties, where clearly the internet was a, was a big and emerging thing. David, you were there what, from 96, 97. Yes. Describe then trying to get to grips with the internet. At what point does the security service think, oh, I think this internet thing might catch on? The arrival of what I describe as digitization, the fact that you could take any form of communication, text, speech, video, any information can be turned into numbers. And once you have numbers, you can then transmit information extremely efficiently. Yes, once, once you've got information uh, in the form of numbers, it's quite cheap to store it. It's cheap to transmit it. You can search it very readily. All of these things arrived around the noughties. By the mid-1990s, when I was at GCHQ, you could see the first traces of what you would call a digital intelligence, gathering information from streams of data no longer transmitted by radio waves, but instead carried uh, by satellite microwave links and uh, fibre optic cables. The internet itself didn't really become popularised for a few years beyond that. It was very much business and governments. Very few private individuals had internet accounts. What I think really transformed things was then uh, the introduction of mobile devices. So the mobile phones we used to have in those days, analog phones, became digital. The uh, iPads, the laptop computers became ubiquitous. And that just led to an explosion of information being passed around the globe, creating opportunities for intelligence agencies, but also at that very moment, creating opportunities for the bad guys to start uh, what today you would call cyber attacks, stealing information, stealing intellectual property, carrying out acts of sabotage on our system by hacking into our 
devices. So it's a complete transformation of in the space of really what, 20 years. And Francis, I suppose, on the one hand, it means there's more information flying around. So from a GCHQ perspective, you've got more chance of, of getting into it. But you're looking for the needle, the haystack's also much bigger. There's just more... more Absolutely. Yeah. Now, in, in um, David's and my time at GCHQ, the vast majority of our business was with traditional means of communication. We could see this digital tsunami coming. We knew it would be with us within 10 years. And at the time, we simply weren't capable of handling those volumes of data. And I think most of what David and I did during our time was to prepare for that that huge increase in um, our capacity. And when we talk, we've used the phrase good guys and bad guys uh, quite a lot already. I suppose over time, who the good guys and the bad guys are changes, both for political reasons, diplomatic reasons, economic reasons. Are we constantly spying on everyone? Or or are there a list of countries or organisations that you're allowed to spy on? And, you know, so you are allowed to spy on Russia, but not on Germany. I don't know, is, that, is that how it works? It doesn't really work like that. We have a list of requirements that we don't task ourselves. We're tasked by government um, to pursue a whole series of intelligence requirements. And we go where it's necessary in order to find that. And there are countries, of course, which are completely off limits. Our intelligence alliance, um, the Five Eyes, is so close that we couldn't possibly spy on each other. It could be unthinkable and we just don't do it. You know, we don't spend a great deal of time spying on friendly countries. It really depends where there are threats to our interests emerging. Just remind me the five eyes. That's America. America, Canada, Australia. Us, New Zealand. That's right. And what about spies? Again, you know, whenever we talk about spies, people will be thinking of in the films, David. But at various times when there have been diplomatic, geopolitical tensions between Britain and other countries, we will kick out people who we call spies. It happened after Russia invaded Ukraine. Does that mean we allow a certain amount of known spies to be in the country at any one time? Well, there are always intelligence officers in a lot of foreign embassies in London sometimes quite a lot of them. And they're there partly because we need to cooperate with other um, intelligence agencies, and even more so, really, with the advent of the internet, because we need cooperation if, if we don't want to bump into each other in the dark <laughs> in, in the internet. Um, we're very often pursuing the same targets. Sometimes we're not pretending to be GCHQ. Well, we're never pretending to be GCHQ usually. Um, but we might be pretending to be some extremist organisation. And if we bump into another extremist organisation, it's in fact Moroccan intelligence. <laughs> That's not very clever. So on the whole, we have much more dialogue than we ever did in the past with foreign intelligence agencies. And my successors in GCHQ have personal relationships with heads of agencies on a far, far larger scale than I ever did. There's a whole class of targets that you would regard as criminals, the cyber attackers, uh, the money launderers, those who are conducting human trafficking, serious and organised crime groups, who these days have enormous resources at their disposal. They make a great deal of money out of crime. And assisting the police, the National Crime Agency, for example, it's one of the tasks that GCHQ undertakes. And and she talked about resources and allies. David, you said in 2013 of Britain's relationship with America, we have the brains, they have the money. It's a collaboration that's worked very well. Is that stuff? That was, what, uh, 10 years ago. Is that still the case? Have we still got the brains and they've just got the money? 
I did say that it was a joke on the radio, and it was uh, a reminder be careful to me, never that. be very careful, never make jokes. But there's a grain of truth in it that we have dedicated and extremely capable people working on these issues, and they come up with really smart, innovative ideas. And this continues. One of the themes of the current director has been diversity of views, diversity of mind, getting really smart people to think how you defeat the the bad guys, how you get across their uh, communications. So that kind of work uh, still goes on. It's really essential that it that it does. And so, what what makes a good spy these days. You're talking about a diversity of thought, David. A move away from the tap on the shoulder at Oxbridge and all the same type of people doing the same type of work. Is that what you mean? Yes. And you've got to be careful when you use the word spy. <laughs> really, we on the one hand, you have intelligence officers employed by the uh, intelligence agencies, and their job is to organise the collection of intelligence when they're doing it uh, by rec- recruiting human agents. It's the agent who is really the spy inside the adversary's uh, military forces or whatever it might be, or inside the terrorist organization. What makes a good intelligence officer? Curiosity, integrity, there are a whole series of characteristics that you would certainly look for. In some cases, bravery, uh, particularly working in a dangerous place overseas, trying to contact people who will want to help the United Kingdom. They believe in what we believe in. They believe in our values. They may have considerable difficulties with the local regime that may be, for example, very violent. Just think of the current conflict taking place in Ukraine at the moment. Finding people who are prepared to tell us about what the Russians are actually up to. So that's the agent intelligence officer relationship. In a place like GCHQ, you have a variety of skills that are needed. Some are very technical, uh, obviously very high uh, understanding of how the internet uh, uh, and everything associated with the digital world works, but you also need very skilled linguists Mm -hmm. and you need analysts. You need people who can see these different pieces of the jigsaw and put them together. And that's involves almost an intuitive flair as well, uh, obviously, as a lot of training. Francis, is it a bit like people who say they want to be Prime Minister? They, they, they should be excluded once they've even said that. Is, is there something about the sort of people who think they might like to be a spy should be immediately excluded? Well, we're encouraging a whole lot of people to want to be spies. Um, we all advertise for uh, recruits openly. You'll see posters on the uh, underground. The kind of people we're looking for has changed a great deal. Um, We're looking for a much more diverse range of people. And we're looking what's more for leaders. Siginters used to be stereotypically um, rather, rather introverted types. They were immensely patient analysts. They were immensely skillful. But they basically had been looking at one target and one target only, almost only, i.e. Russia, for 50 years. And with the end of the Cold War and this multiplicity of new threats, you needed a much greater flexibility and you needed really imaginative leaders. And I think it's a very, very different kind of person that is is running the agencies now to the kind of people you'd have seen there 20 years ago. So we've heard about the history of DCHQ, who you are and aren't allowed to spy on, and what makes a good spy. 
But let's look at the threats we face now. This is Sir Francis on whether global Islamic terrorism means that Britain took its eye off Russia. At GCHQ, I'd say not on my watch because I'm a Russia, I'm a Russia hand. Um, I spent much of my career watching Russia and I was very conscious of the threat that a sick and unsuccessful Russia, which had failed to establish um, a lasting democratic framework and which felt a tremendous sense of failure and disappointment at the loss of great power status. I thought that was very worrying. And even when the um, Russian government was not itself in the least malevolent, and it wasn't for most of the 1990s, it was, I used to compare it to a rotten tree, which harboured all sorts of disease, criminals. I mean, the the kind of um, people who now pose a threat to our communications from Russia were there then. But they were, they were criminals, not at that time working in such large numbers as they do today for the government. And do you think, David, that Russia as it stands can be defeated? Well, you know, clearly there's a, there's a military battle going on with Ukraine. There's an economic battle going on with the sanctions. So presumably there's an intelligence battle going on as well. Yes, I think the important thing is that Russia should not be able to gain from their flagrant breach of international law, the invasion of a sovereign country, a country which Russian leader President Putin himself accepted in the 1990s uh, when the Soviet Union broke up. So they must not be allowed to get away with that. But defeating Russia in the sense of the United States, other NATO countries, uh, are not going to go to war with, I hope, with and need to go to war with Russia. But it is necessary they support Ukraine to the hilt to prevent Russian aggression in Ukraine. Can I qualify that? Just to say that, um, nonetheless, we have t- to take into account the fact that we are, in a sense, also at war with Russia, though it's not a hot war. I mean, they will use all the means at their disposal to undermine the solidarity of the West, to encourage those in the West who aren't there for the long haul, who feel that there must be an early negotiated end to this conflict, and we have to give Russia quite a lot in order to make that possible. And they will do that um, with all the tools at their disposal, including their assaults on the whole concept of absolute truth. And they poison our airwaves. I don't disagree with that at all. (laughs) But we're long standing members of NATO. We were in there at the very beginning. NATO is a defence and deterrence doctrine. And if we hold firm, we should not and need not fear being in armed conflict with Russia. We've also got China to worry about. Mm. And we mustn't forget the enormous intellectual property theft that China has conducted against Western companies, including in the United Kingdom, her build-up in the military sphere, her own activities and the threats she poses to the to Taiwan, for example, all of which could create in the years to come very considerable trouble, which is why it is so important. We have places like GCHQ staffed with very innovative people to keep an eye on those threats. And of course, we haven't talked in this conversation about terrorism. That hasn't gone away either. No, and I suppose it's, it's, it's down to the success of the security services that we don't talk about that as much as we used to because, touch wood, there haven't been the, the, the big attacks, you know, so you'd hope this because they're, they're stopping them. I want to ask you, although you've, you've mentioned China, a few weeks ago, all anyone was talking about was balloons. 
spy balloons, which struck me as distinctly un-21st century and, and very analogue. Uh, the idea, you know, as you were talking about cyber attacks on businesses and intellectual property theft and, and all of that. Are balloons a real threat, David? Well, you say analogue, but I have no doubt that hanging underneath that balloon was some extremely sophisticated digital interception kit looking for all forms of uh, signatures from United States military and other communications. So, no, balloons have some advantage. As has been shown, they appear to have been flying over the United States for many years now, virtually undetected. That has now changed and the parameters of detection have been altered. So now they're popping up. But uh, I think we probably make too much of the balloon. The the satellite constellations, which uh, certainly Russia and and China operate all the time, um, looking at us, for example, and uh, the NATO allies, that I think poses a far greater threat than the occasional balloon. But all the balloon is anyway, is is simply a way of deploying um, fairly cheaply a very large quantity of sensors in a very low orbit, more or less geostationary, just another kind of satellite, really. Exactly, that's what I thought. And probably satellites are doing uh, much the same. Um, just um, last couple of things I wanted to ask you both. The highs and lows, What when you look back on your time at GCHQ, when has something gone wrong that you're allowed to tell us about? Or where something has gone particularly right against, against the odds? What I'd point to is the complexity, the difficulty of actually conducting this activity and the sense of continuing marvel that I have that we are so successful at it because it does involve creating extremely complicated systems, electronic digital systems, collecting information, huge quantities of it these days, using artificial intelligence these days to sift it and filter it and search it. Sometimes these projects go extremely well, sometimes they don't. And that's that's not every program that you launch and not every new idea is going to bear fruit. But the important thing is like a portfolio in investment terms. The important <laughs> thing is you have some really big wins that justify the effort you're putting in and uh, the authorised history of GCHQ, which came out last year by Professor John Ferrison, Canadian a- a- academic, has got a whole list of, from the Cold War era earlier and earlier, extraordinary successes mm. uh, that signals intelligence have led to. David and I spent our time at GCHQ in an organisation in need of huge modernization. David developed a vision for that, and I spent my time after him trying to follow that up and implement some of it. What gives me the buzz is going back now and seeing what we dreamt of. Um, it has been a colossal success. I joined GCHQ in 1969 as a young analyst. Uh, and in those days, of course, it had no legal personality. It, it was secret. You weren't even supposed to tell your parents where you were working. All that has changed now and for the better. And it is now a recognised and valuable jewel in in the British crown. And so looking ahead, uh, GCHQ now looking for a new director because uh, Sir Jeremy Fleming is going to stand down in the summer. What are the challenges that that GCHQ will be facing maybe the next decade? Where do the threats come from 
from next, do you think, Francis? I'm afraid it's the same places. There will be global competition with China. We have a rogue state, a huge rogue state on our boundaries. Um, those will be the two challenge, the two big challenges. Um, but we also have, obviously, all the challenges associated with um, climate change and the um, threats to global security that will come from that. There will be wars uh, for control of scarce resources. It's going to be a very difficult century. And I think what we need now is not to try and predict exactly where those are going to come from, but to go on keeping our organisations so flexible that they're ready for everything that that the century can throw at them. David? You can see obvious threats uh, continuing from terrorism, from Uh, hostile states. But you can also, I think, sense that climate change will bring tensions between states. It'll bring quite possibly large-scale population movements. Uh, You can see that extreme weather events, natural phenomena, are nevertheless going to cause us considerable dislocation. And it's precisely at those moments that an adversary state may well try and take advantage of of the distraction or disarray that we're in. The lesson to all of that, I think, is building up resilience as a nation, an all-of-nation effort just to toughen ourselves up for the uh, undoubted challenges that are ahead. That's all we've got time for on this episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget you can listen to me live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1 on Times Radio. We bring you the best bits here on the podcast. And if you're feeling particularly nice, why not wait and review us wherever you get your podcasts from. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.